fuzzy boundaries are everywhere in nature and fuzzy boundaries are everywhere in our complex world. Hi, thanks for listening to Doorknob Comments. I'm Farah White. And I'm Grant Brenner. We are psychiatrists on a mission to educate and advocate for mental health and overall well-being. In addition to the obvious, we focus on the subtle, often unspoken dimensions of human experience, the so-called doorknob comments people often make just as they are leaving their therapist's office. We seek to dispel misconceptions while offering useful perspectives through open and honest conversation. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, and requests. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I'm Farah White here with Grant Brenner and our guest, Dr. Terry Marks-Tarlow. Dr. Marks-Tarlow is a clinical psychologist um, in private practice in Santa Monica. She's a professor and author of more than 10 books, a dancer and a composer, and most recently has written A Fractal Epistemology for Scientific Psychology. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Your recent book, though, there's so many things we can talk about. It, it's a collection of excellent chapters by a variety of star-studded authors, yeah? Incredible blurbs at the beginning, incredible references from really well-known people, including Alan Shore, who, if you study attachment theory at all, you'll, you'll recognize he's a, a seminal thinker in the field. And, and it's, it's an amazing tour de force that covers a lot of territory. The focus being on like transpersonal therapy, but before we dive into that, how did you get interested in, in fractal mathematics as it relates to psychology? I love to tell this story. It goes back to just graduating from um, graduate school and realizing that depression, which I had done my dissertation in, really didn't interest me. And what did was creativity. And I know that the best way of learning anything is to teach it. So I started to teach at UCLA Extension in creativity, uh, was asked to moderate a course, um, a large course, which really scared me at the time because I didn't feel qualified, but that's all right. I just jumped in. So uh, people were flown in who are experts in creativity. And through that experience, I started drawing weekly with a sculptor who is friends with um, Richard Feynman, the physicist. And as the reputedly smartest man in the world, I figured I'd better study up so I could pick his brain, especially because he wasn't really talking to the press at all. And so it was like having this private opportunity and we would draw and then we'd go into the hot tub and it was really in the hot tub that I could pick his brain. So I started to read science and wanted to, you know, be intelligent in asking him questions. And I came across fractal geometry. This is this is a story that I tell in Psyche's Veil, which I, I know Grant um, knows that book because you helped edit that book. So the Feynman story is I when I discovered fractals, I ran to him and I said, don't you think fractals are profound? And someone in the room said, well, what's a fractal? And he spent the next 10 minutes or so with a state-of-the-art explanation of fractal dimensionality and you know, just, just technical, gave a technical description of, of what fractals are. And I waited patiently. And when he was done, I said, don't you think fractals are profound? And his answer was, I don't understand them, which at the time 
made me feel crestfallen because I wanted the validation that they were indeed profound. Over time, I came to realize that the paradox of the smartest man in the world saying he doesn't understand something, he just explained to the utmost capacity, that kind of contradiction is inherent in the psyche. And so I, I learned a lot in the aftermath about how contradiction gets enfolded in the psyche and is at the heart of the psyche as well as the heart of the universe, which is part of fractal geometry. But at the time, I, I felt just crestfallen that I had, to, I, I had to figure out why I thought fractals were profound alone. I couldn't have somebody tell me. So I spent the next 20 years trying to figure why I thought fractals are profound. And it the result is this book. I mean, I think this is sort of the culmination of figuring that out and really kind of coming into my own. And I have a fractal pattern in my own life of men sort of dismissing my initial impulses and then me getting angry or, or, or just being my heels in to prove I have something to say. The Fractal book came out of a very similar thing with Harris Friedman, who is a transpersonal researcher. And when I first met him, he came to a clinical intuition workshop that I gave and I found out he was a transpersonalist. So I sort of geared what I said to what he said. He invited me to write a piece for the International Journal of Transpersonal Studies on fractals. And that's really what spawned the book. But he didn't believe in what I was doing at all and called what we were doing an adversarial uh, collaboration. And now he's the one that talks about fractals more than I uh, on a daily basis, because in my own home, if I use the F word, um, my whole family turns against me. So I, I don't tend to talk about it. I'm curious about what it's like to teach a course in clinical intuition. And yeah, I did sort of haven't known that, you know, haven't read much about it. I'm you're, wondering. You're highly intuitive, right? Yeah. I, I think that clinical intuition is the heart of psychotherapy, no matter what anybody it, what what anybody's doing, and that really it has taken interpersonal neurobiology, Alan Shore's approach, um, Dan Siegel's approach, to legitimize that, and because by understanding what's happening in the brain and the nervous system, then we can start to understand how intuition works as opposed to its previous reputation as being airy-fairy or non-scientific and, um, and all of that. But I, um, I think it should be a staple in every single course of any kind of clinical training because it is the it does fill the gap between theory and practice it's intuition yeah it's how we embody it's how we embody theory it's how we embody relationship and and so i love teaching and i do teach courses in clinical intuition you know in, in clinical intuition and it's it was really sort of the precursor of moving towards the transpersonal as i then have moved from a more um, local level of body to body con sort of intuition I, all my wild books. over there <laughs> A bunch of books just oh, fell down. Really? Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is really spooky. <laughs> the spooky action at a distance. Spooky action. That's exactly what I was going to say. And uh, 
um, going, you know, going from the local uh, what happens in the room type of intuition to things like intuition through dreams, which then goes into circles back around into the more transpersonal um, kinds of non-local dimensions. So my most recent writing is on that the non-local part of of intuition, but it's providing bread and butter to people that don't even realize they're starving. And people tend to say, oh my gosh, I feel validated and I feel at home now in myself because we tend when when things are more left brain, pure theoretical, we tend to hide the, you know, our, the, our sensibilities of that, but that's not what we do in the room. That's not how it happens in the room. Yeah, I, I, I tend to be very intuitive. And I'll mention things, you know, because I work associatively. I think one thing, even for non-clinicians, is to be open to your associations. Because um, a lot of times we're, I think, trained to uh, suppress certain ways of thinking, uh, p- particularly if you're in a more conventional or conformist type of mindset. Exactly. So I'll say stuff and then, you know, the other person will say, I was, I watched that movie last week. It happens over and over again, you know, mm-hmm. or I'll say something that I like, I wonder, you know, if, if someone heard what I was saying, not because it's, you know, off color, but because it just seems like a non sequitur, like just unrelated to what we're talking about. I say something and then, and then the per, the other person, you know, when I'm doing therapy, will be, will have some childhood memory that is very closely connected with my in, intuitive utterance. And you, you never, never could have guessed there's no linear exactly. way to predict that. That's the non-local stuff. And that's synchronicity also, um, which is the subject of my most recent paper with Yaakov Shapiro, the psychiatrist who's one of the editors of the uh, the Fractal book, uh, because mm-hmm. I think that kind of synchronicity is... Um, there's self-similar, self-similarity between inner and outer processes. There's a resonance between inner and outer. And right. really, really excited. I'm, now I'm teaching that book um, at CIIS, the California Institute of Integral Studies. And one of the students wrote a paper that just blew me away on the ecological application of this that the uh, that resonance between inner and outer but outer as as the broader uh, framework of nature um as a fractal process and so it's it's pretty exciting stuff because it's bridging feels to me like these ideas bridge these different worlds bridge these different elements that don't tend to be put together. In fact, they tend to be separated out. Like people stake their territory and they say, you know, this is this is the real stuff and the other stuff isn't real. But the idea of, of, of a fractal fuzzy boundary, fuzzy boundaries are everywhere in nature and fuzzy boundaries are everywhere in our complex world. We just don't like them. And unfortunately, society is polarizing and going the opposite way of trying to draw boundaries instead of look at the the fuzziness. But Mm -hmm. I think they're everywhere, especially in psychology and especially in personal relationships. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. I'm wondering how this sort of translates in terms of your practice and what it looks like as these fuzzy boundaries kind of play out. Well, there's a, in psychoanalysis, I think there that most contemporary psychoanalysts are 
practicing intersubjectivity and people call it different things. They call it the analytic third. Just imagine the difference of between sitting with somebody where the boundaries are really firm between, which I would say is somebody in a defensive stance or both people in a defensive stance. So there's actually no real exchange. There's just there's just um, ideas in a, in a single direction uh, going back and forth versus a truly fertile moment relationally, whether it's in therapy or it's with your good friend or it's with a, a, a relative where you get lost in one another, you get lost in the moment and the moment takes both of you somewhere as opposed to your figuring out what you want to say or where you want it to go. Um, those are fuzzy boundaries, right? But there can be sort of some level of union or, or merger temporarily. Exactly. And then exactly. you, you tap into some sort of higher type of information or something like that. It, it makes right. me want to ask you to kind of define what transpersonal psychology is. <laughs> well, I come in through the back door of, of it. And so the, there, I think there are great politics around how it's defined. And the way I'm going to define it has nothing to do with the field. <laughs> yeah. For listeners, you know, you, you might you might find it interesting that all these different schools of psychology have all kinds of weird politics. Right. I'll try not to bog down in that. I mean, one way of understanding what transpersonal is, is simply a psychology that goes between between people. So cultural things and that sort of thing, cultural archetypes, archetypes that say of the of the good mother and the bad mother or the hero or this kind of thing that are that arise independently all over the world that would be one def, one aspect of transpersonal another aspect of transpersonal is people's unique experiences subjectively like in in consciousness so um religious religious feelings uh peak moments special highs flow states this kind of thing subjectively is considered uh, transpersonal. And then there's the edge of it that is uh, more like paranormal things, like um, uncanny known, knowing that Grant was talking about earlier, that kind of thing where I'm just thinking about a friend and she calls on the phone, um, which happens to people all the time. And it's easy to dismiss these things um, just through statistics. Oh, how many times do I think about people and they don't call? So it's we can marginalize those experiences, but the more we tap into them, the more they tend to happen. And I do believe that each person, just like each person has a sort of a characteristic way of expressing stress, like some people get headaches, some people get stomach aches, some people, you know, loopy thoughts that they can't stop, obsessive thinking, this sort of thing. I they, think, they sometimes lash out at other people, right? Yeah, aggression, that kind of thing. That's another one. I think that each person also has a sort of a characteristic way of leaning into their own transpersonal world. So I have synchronicity happen all the time. And even synchronous that Grant named a synchrony, you know, a synchronous event kind of thing. Um, other people 
who are more uh, empathic than I am have, they're very good at reading other people's minds. That one I'm less good at, but, but so the outside sort of hits me rather than from the inside. I I think of that as in a mechanistic way, like, you know, how is that information transmitted? I don't, I don't imagine that it goes through the ether. Like I think Richard Feynman, who you mentioned earlier, talked about these things. There's got to be like a way that it happens physically. I, I right. think a lot of that, as I would imagine you would see it similarly, has to do with the nature of, of the brain um, and the nervous system as, as being l- largely composed of oscillating, you know, resonant phenomenon so that we're sort of designed to um, vibe off of each other. And a lot of it is just nonverbal. Like a lot of it isn't what you're saying. It's how you're saying it in your face and how you're moving. Plus there's the history you develop together. So you've got like some model of the other person that you've been unconsciously sort of building over time. The greater the intimacy, the greater the chance that these things will happen. And the greater the, the more intense the moment, the greater the chance. So there, when there's high arousal events like near death, and that has to do with survival too, um, you know, that there's an evolutionary press for information under these very high risk situations. So unconscious to unconscious communication and unconscious to unconscious information sharing, I think is a big part of it. And Yaakov have also just done a quantum model for the non-local stuff. So, so the nature of the brain, but also how we may be tapping into a unitary level of potentiality under the surface is uh, um, another piece of the of the non-local puzzle. And one thing that Yaakov is very uh, insistent about kind of myth busting is the idea of energy fields because energy um, in physics degrades over distance and time. And, but, but this non-local stuff does not. Um, people can be in Faraday cages and still have this have information sharing happening. A, a Faraday cage is a closed metal surface. And so you can't have any radio waves inside of it. So if you were inside of a closed metal surface, your cell phone wouldn't work. Right. And people still um, have remote viewing from inside a cage like that. And consciousness appears to um, not be constrained by, by it. And so it's not an energetic thing. And uh, in, in our field, all this stuff about energy fields and stuff, although at the local level, there's probably a piece of energy, except it's more, more metabolic energy, I think. This gets very tricky with the quantum physics because, of course, um, for particles can get connected with each other in a way which physicists call entanglement. No matter how far apart they are, um, if you measure one, then you know the state of the other one. So if you have an entangled... Uh, photon and its spin is up. If you measure it, you know the spin of the other one is down. But until you measure it, you you don't know anything about them individually. You only know about them as a paired system. Um, and so people speculate that somehow consciousness is also non-local in the right. way that particles can be entangled and be a light year apart. But still, if you measured one, you would know the other immediately. Right. 
Exactly. And there are different ways of understanding the role of consciousness, Copenhagen interpretation that it's actually real consciousness. Some others say it's just uh, the universe as measurement itself. And we use David Bohm's model, which is more the implicate order that there's just a whole kind of level consciousness can tap into kind of beautiful i think inside of a psychoanalytic model because when when we talk about implicit versus explicit processes it's there's almost a self similar resonance between that it's like what you were talking about before um, consciousness is more explicit meaning it's based on words and and listening to words and thinking about things in a very conscious way but so much of the communication that we're t- that we're talking about certainly transpersonal is implicit it's unconscious it's body to body kinds of things and so Two levels appear to be in this quantum model that there's the implicate order that is the whole realm of anything being possible, the potential, and then there's the explicate of how things are manifest real world at a material level. So it's kind of similar, actually, to the human, to the whole human psyche. This is really my first introduction to anything like this. What's, you know, what's beautiful, I think, about this way of looking at, um, at, you know, uncanny knowing is that it, it's a more scientific way. And it's not just psychics, you know, talking about psychics that people love, but mo- many people dismiss is it's this isn't real. And it, quote unquote, too woo woo. It's woo woo. Yeah. So that excludes people from sort of having access to certain tools, you, even something like the idea of fractals. Okay, right. In psychoanalytic therapy, we talk about transference. So the way the person is relating in therapy is similar to their developmental relationships. And fractals are all about similarity. Exactly. So if you have this basic idea, you look at some fractals or you imagine how a forest, you know, contains little versions of itself all throughout. And the big the big forest looks like the little forest. And right as you walk through a forest, it looks like it's constantly evolving as it's coming at you. And, you know, the leaves look like little branches and the trees have big branches, right? And it, right, it looks like the branching of the lungs and the branching of the blood vessels. Nature is made of this type of mathematical structure, but it, I think it's a shorthand way for people to understand like a big pattern, right? That they're part of. It's a pattern that transcends space and time. So it's on same pattern, different scales, whether it's across time or size or generation. So epigenetics, the new field of epigenetics, how our experience and how we're taking care of changes our genetic expression. And then that gets inherited by the next generation. So now we have this self-similarity over generation from one to the next. So it's, you know, it's really broadening. It helps to broaden the focus. But when the transference is too tight, when repetition is too exact, we're locked into kind of a rigid behavior pattern that's very unhealthy. Sometimes people are are also locked into rigid patterns of chaos, which is a little paradoxical, but very common as well. And, and so the healthy places in the middle of those two. It's called the nervous system, but I wonder if things would be different if it had been called the calm system. 
<laughs> I love that. I thought that was a benign joke. I think so. Well, yeah. do you think things would be different if, if uh, called the calm system? Possibly. I'm not sure the direction of causality with when we talk about someone being nervous, you know, or having nerves has a pejorative, you know, negative overtone. But I think that that ability for people to be more cognitively flexible is connected with spontaneity, the ability to improv, to use improvisation. And like you're saying, you can be stuck like in a rigid state where a person is like just repeating, like obsessive compulsive disorder is an extreme example of that. Or you can be so chaotic that you're stuck in this like hyper disconnected state, which could be like um, some post-traumatic states or like bipolar disorder, like mania. And, and both of those extremes are suboptimal. Exactly. It's somewhere in the middle. Enough stability for communication and, and order, but enough, enough instability for creativity and novelty. Yeah. So that's a whole different model, by the way, of mental health that is based on complexity theory. Because the old model of mental health is stability. Well, it's that balance. I, I, I know that they call that a far from equilibrium system, where there's a, a sort of a balance between the stability of the boundaries and the permeability of the boundaries. But maybe I know you've written about this and, and use it as a therapist and thought about it extensively and talked about it. How do you think about personality and what would you tell listeners kind of like, what can I understand about myself that I might not have gotten from sort of traditional models? Yeah, I, I remember when I um, was in graduate school and very unhappy with the cognitive behavioral model that I was doing my dissertation in and learning and didn't believe in the to begin with and disproved in my dissertation that I went to Gestalt um, to get some extra training. Uh, the way they talked about personality is the optimal condition is not having a personality. It's sort of like what we were just saying. If you're sort of stuck in, in, in one, one manifestation, then, you know, that's not very healthy. And each situation should bring out something slightly different to, to fit the context and or in each relationship is going to bring out a different side of ourselves. And so I think that a more fluid and dynamic process model of personality is possible in this way. We do resemble ourselves over time, no question about that, just like our people <laughs> themselves, and yet they're all the cells and stuff change over time. And so the, there, there's a balance between change, stability and change that I think is well, is well captured by I actually think fractals are sort of the meta pattern of patterns. So it's the way patterning works and things have a fractal pattern and that's their identity is that specific pattern. And I think that applies to our identity as well, that, that, that there's a, a fractal piece to it that allows us to recognize ourselves, but also gives plenty of room for change and growth and evolution. And also there's a, um, I'm reminded of Hillman um, is a famous Jungian, uh, James Hillman. He, uh, the acorn theory of the soul is a fractal theory. So his, this idea, his idea is um, that at birth, we our soul is complete. And, and it's not just Hillman. I think this is a religious idea in, in a number of different religions that 
um, that it comes whole and complete with its own pattern, um, the way that the whole tree is embedded inside of the acorn to begin with. And so there's a very holistic quality to, to, to fractals as opposed to a reductionist quality, yep. other ways of parsing the world into parts. This does the opposite. The pattern is is at the level of the whole and the parts fit the same pattern. We spoke with uh, a parenting psych- psychology expert last week, Sarah Bren, or the week before, and she uses a parenting model that the the name is escaping me. Do you remember Farah? That was started Rye, in the seventies. The, the Rye model. The Rye model, which has a similar idea of seeing the child sort of as whole from the beginning. Yeah, and autonomous. And, yes, you know. yes. I have Rye. I know the Rye people very well. I have some in my own group. So oh, uh, cool. Well, I think one of the things about fractals is is for people to understand that they don't exactly repeat. So there's kind of a flavor which is unique. And you could see it with essentially infinite variation. Like a fractal is something mathematically and visually, you can look it up online, like fractal zoom, you know, on your favorite streaming video channel. And the more you magnify it, the more you see this implicit order. And it looks the same, but is different. And, and yeah, like snowflakes, right? Like a snowflake, I think, is a, is a good way of understanding that concept. Each snowflake resembles each other, but there are differences um, when you look very closely. Well, well, like people, right? Like you can tell a person's a person, right? We all, I remember I I went to a talk the Dalai Lama gave many years ago. I, I heard him speak twice and both times I fell asleep within at least like maybe at most five minutes. But I remember him saying like, all people are pretty much the same two eyes, nose, mouth, you know, of course there's variations, but everyone is also very different, right? From afar, we all are the same. As you zoom in and get close, you see everyone is is quite unique. This is something about being able to see yourself fully requires compassion and love. I want to ask you about before we have to wind down, because my sense is for people who really have difficulty with themselves, um, difficulty with self-acceptance, or difficulty, you know, loving themselves, including their faults. It's very hard to catch a glimpse of the whole personality, mm-hmm. which gets in the way of self-knowing, perhaps. Now you're talking about um, the value of using fractal metaphors for people in in how they view themselves, and um, there are some wonderful ones, um, including, you know, one of the things that people can feel really bad about is the repetition of their own issues, and they think that to be healthy means to work something through means to make it disappear, but nothing ever disappears. And especially from the point of view of the brain, everything is still there. And even if we don't use it. Um, and so this is is a good metaphor for that you can still make progress even with the same patterns and that don't don't, you know, without looking for for them to to disappear. And I think the other thing about love and compassion and um, connection with the universe at large is fractals connect us to the universe at large. And so it's, it becomes easier to have compassion for ourselves when we can feel more connected like that um, in a general way, not just to, to other people, but also to nature at large. And nature turn, turns out to be healing during this time of COVID. People should be getting outside and in nature because looking at fractals, there's research, uh, Richard Taylor's research, just looking at nature 
um, and the fractal uh, quality of nature is is uh, soothing and healing. And if you're in a hospital, um, having a window outside, but even a picture of it, of nature will help heal people heal. I also understand that for people who have trouble organizing their thoughts, that images of nature help the brain to approach a more organized state. Interesting. I had like for ADHD. Yeah, Grant, is that why you have your your screen? Well, one of the reasons my my background, which is which is a physical background, it's not um, you know like a digital background that people have on Zoom, is just a a canvas panel with a picture of a forest. Yeah, yeah, most people like it. I like it. Oh yeah, I and I'm so glad it's not one of those virtual backgrounds. I hate them. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's this, a certain deliberateness in, in that choice as well. But, you know, uh, to each their own, right? Some people are more deliberative. And uh, I think what you're saying about change, you know, maybe one of the last things we can ask you about. Sure, people wish they could change overnight. And you can tell them change can take time, though sometimes there are sudden bursts of change that we see developmentally. Um, that's a longer conversation. But have you ever worked with or met someone who they seem to set their mind to change and then they make a sudden change and they seem to become different virtually overnight and get rid of a problem they've had for a long time. Do you have any thoughts about that type of change? Oh, sudden change versus gradual change? Yeah, like, you know, is it is it as durable? Um, is that based in suppression and then later on it comes back? Or, you know, do you, but like I said, I've, I've certainly met people who, you know, they've made a decision and then they're going to stop doing something or they're going to change the way they act. Right. I think, you know, that's part part of personality, I think, is um, how the what change looks like in each person, that some people are very slow changers and they need really gradual incremental change in a particular direction. And then other people who probably tend to be um, more creative or um, more comfortable it, with uncertainty. Uh, those are often the ones that can have those sudden changes. But the the sudden change people can often flip back. The gradual change people tend to it tends to be a more lasting change. Just think about dieting. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that plays people that gradually lose weight have a better chance of of uh, holding on to it yep. than the really sudden um, starvation type diet. Thank you so much for being here. And I'm wondering where can listeners find you if they want to learn more about you and your work? Website is best. It's Marks Tarlow, my last name, which is M-A-R-K-S-T-A-R-L-O-W.com. And um, all my books, uh, there are links to to buy the books. Um, There are also uh, videos of different presentations and all the papers I've ever done can you can download as well and I've done a lot of papers I've written papers so for real it's fantastic there's art too right you're an artist as well I'm an oh that's right my art is on there and I illustrate all my own books and I curate psychotherapist art which is up right now if people want to see psychotherapist art and there are a lot of New York artists in this one Mm. um, because of Leanne posting that's under LACPA Mirrors, L-A-C-P-A-M-I-R-R-O-R-S.com. There's a virtual gallery of um, almost 100 artists with artist statements and um, some videos of artist spotlights. And there's a free artist spotlight um, this Sunday. 
Oh, yeah. that's awesome. Maybe we can link to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah and thank you so much for the invitation. I just love talking about all these things and you guys are great. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Doorknob Comments. We're committed to bringing you new episodes with great guests. Please take a moment to share your thoughts. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find us on Instagram at Doorknob Comments. Remember, this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of psychiatry or any other type of medicine. This is not a substitute for professional and individual treatment services and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you feel that you may be in crisis, please don't delay in securing mental health treatment. Thank you for listening.